Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. We are very pleased on today's show to have with us a friend and a towering intellectual, Eddie S. Glau Jr., who is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton University, the author of many books, but he is the author most recently of the New York Times bestselling Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. So Dr. Eddie S. Glau Jr., Professor Big-time intellectual, welcome to Race and Democracy. Man, it's my pleasure to be with you. This is amazing. How are you doing? And congratulations on your extraordinary book as well. No, thank you. I have to say, this is one of the best books I've ever read. And I think that it's such an extraordinary time for all of us in 2020. It feels like you wrote this book this year, <laughs> even, <laughs> even as I know just because of the press process, you did not. But I want us to get into it. This is a book that talks about James Baldwin and how we can look at this moment of racial and political and moral reckoning. It talks about Trumpism. It talks about BLM. But at the heart of the book is really, I think, a very hopeful book, but a book that really asks and requests of all of us to face what you call the lie about America, American democracy, about race. And so I want, I want us to start there in terms of begin again. What is this lie? Well, first of all, thank you for such kind words about the book. Uh, that's high praise, especially from someone like yourself, Benil. I want to just begin by insisting that the through line of American history is what I call the value gap. And the value gap is this belief that white people matter more than others. Right? And that belief shapes our dispositions, it informs our public and social arrangements, our political and economic uh, realities, and the lie are those stories we tell to protect it. Baldwin wrote an essay in 1964 entitled The White Problem. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, the country was founded on a fatal flaw, that these Christians who sought to create this democratic republic, as it were, also decided to hold chattel. And they said that these men and women were not human beings, because if they weren't human beings, Baldwin suggests, then no crime would have been committed. And then this is the line, Vanille, he says, that lie is the basis of our current troubles, our present problems. That lie is the basis of our present problems. So the lie is the story we tell about Black capacity, our passions, who we are, the stories we tell to justify the dehumanization of Black folk. It's the stories we tell about America as the shining city on the hill, about you know the lies we tell about what we've done with regards to Black folk and, and brown folk across the globe. The lie about us being the shining city on the hill, a redeemer nation, an example of democracy achieved. And so in some ways, to echo Baldwin's language, the lie is, in fact, the way in which we protect our innocence as a nation. And I want to read you some of your own writings in that first chapter, The Lie. You say, the stories we often tell ourselves of the civil rights movement and racial progress in this country, with Rosa Parks's courage, Dr. King's moral vision, and the unreasonable venom of Black power culminating in the election of Barack Obama, are all too often lies. This is really striking, and I think our listeners would like to know, 
What do you mean by that, especially when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to what you say about Black power, when it comes to Obama? Why are those so often lies? You know, I think Black power, it constitutes the repressed of contemporary American politics. We're responding to it over and over and over again. And we like to tell this story as if Black power is wholly separate, wholly separate from the civil rights movement, as if the actors in the civil rights movement were not in some ways, they did not become proponents of Black power. Think of, think of someone like Kwame Ture or Stokely Carmichael, someone you know a lot about. Right? He was one of the most skilled organizers in the civil rights movement. And he said in his autobiography, as you know, that he never broke nonviolent discipline except for one time, for one, one time. And that's when police attacked Dr. King, right? Mm-hmm. And so we tend to read, even it goes so far, Neil, to, that even when John Lewis was being put in the ground, buried, Bill Clinton thought it necessary to say that the movement lost its way when it followed Stokely. <laughs> yes. Right. And so I think it's important for us not to think of these two moments as entirely separate because they're not. Some of the same actors, some of those same students Baldwin was speaking to in 1963, Howard Nag students, right, who were so central to SNCC, ended up being proponents of black power. Right. And so part of what I'm trying to suggest is that this neat story of, you know, I have a dream fits within a certain kind of sanitized understanding of of American history in the mid-20th century. And we have to tell that story in that way so we don't have to deal with the betrayal that's at the heart of the Black Power moment, the Black Power movement itself. So that's what I mean. And you say here, you have a great quote from Jimmy telling the students in 1963, I will never betray you. Talk to us about what was Jimmy Baldwin's relationship with the Black Power movement? I think one of the most fascinating parts of the book, especially the book's first half, but Black Powers throughout, you start with Jimmy and Stokely Carmichael and the fact that in a lot of ways, I agree with you, No Name in the Street is Baldwin's masterpiece. And I love The Fire Next Time, but I've taught No Name in the Street. I've read that over and over again. You also push back against the idea that somehow The Fire Next Time is Baldwin's masterpiece, and he's in decline by no name in the street to the rest of his life because he becomes too, he becomes less objective about the so-called race problem, the Negro problem. So I want you to talk about one, what is his relationship with black power and how he continues to defend Carmichael? The London Times won't publish it, the New York Times won't publish it, but he's this stalwart defender of Angela Davis. I mean, he never, ever, ever gives in. So talk to us about that and about you do such a nice job with No Name in the Street. I feel that we're, I mean, I think to tell everybody, one of the best parts of this book, Begin Again, it feels like we're in a conversation. It feels like we're overhearing you and Baldwin, but at times it feels like we're in a conversation with you. And I think it's so, so well done. Well, thank you so much, man. You know, one of the most powerful experiences I had writing the book was interviewing Angela Davis. And I interviewed her in that, in Princeton, and she mentioned, she said something to me that I will never forget. She said, I don't know what would have happened to me if Jimmy hadn't written that letter. They could have thrown away the key. And, you know, whenever she talked about Baldwin, her eyes danced. But let me, let me answer the question. I think Baldwin's relation to Black power is complicated. He understood it. That is, he understood what he saw in the eyes of those young folk who experienced raw terror in the South, to echo Kwame Ture. 
He understood that these were the children of the nation. Those, these were the consequences. These young folk who embraced black power, black people who expressed their anger and rage, was they were in fact a result of the country's ongoing betrayal. So the first thing he would not do is allow the country to demonize them, right? To say that they were the problem. No, 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 no. You have to look yourself squarely in the face. You created the conditions for these folks. What do you mean we can't defend ourselves? What do you mean we can't put forward a complex vision of what it means to be a self-determining people, right? So Baldwin is engaged in this ongoing conversation over the content of Black Power. And as you know, Black Power is a very complex political moment. Mm -hmm. It's not any one thing, Mm -hmm. right? And I've been using this language to help people understand the Black Lives Matter movement. That Black Lives Matter isn't one thing, it's a sentiment, it's a sensibility, it's an orientation. And the way to read it might be to read it like Black Power. Mm-hmm. Right? That's how I read it. And, and, read it. And, 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 and of course, it's hard to do because Black Power, again, is the repressed. right? But at the same time that Baldwin is understands, because he, you know, as Kwame Ture said, he never betrayed us. He understands, he defends, and Baldwin knew the cost of that defense. He knew what it would mean for him personally. Uh, there's a reason why he never won the Nobel Prize for Literature. But even as he's defending, as he's uh, giving an account of why these young folk are embracing blackness, right? why we have to embrace the very thing that has been used to denigrate and dehumanize us, what is he saying about we have to go through this period in order to get beyond it? He's also kind of warning us not to fall into the trap. So he's very suspicious of what he called that mystical black bullshit. That's his life, <laughs> right? So he's very, very suspicious of us getting trapped in the very categories that deny the humanity of others. So when he resigns from the Liberator, for example, along with Isaac Davis and others over the issue of anti-Semitism, he says, we have to be better than them. Mm-hmm. And then he says, I'm a paraphrasing him here, I want us to do something unprecedented, create a self without the need for enemies. I love that line. That's really important to understand that he he's not an ideologue. That's just not in his personality. He's not going to be beholden to any ideological current that defines black power, but he understands it. He understands the fullness of it. He understands why the young people that he organized with in 63, the young people he was working with in core, why they started saying black power. He understood it. In that interview in Esquire in 1968, they asked him as, as folk were burning down streets, they said, what, did you, what would you say to the folks who are burning down cities? He says, I, tell them not, I wouldn't tell them not to defend themselves. Mm. I wouldn't tell them not to embrace X, Y, and Z. He says, and if it comes to the point, I remember this line, he says, if it comes to the point where you have to blow his brains out, and it may come to that, only thing I would say is don't hate. This is Jimmy in the heat of the moment, right? He gives us this really interesting moment. And of course, his, his heart was broken by Eldridge Cleaver, Eldridge Cleaver's critique of his masculinity and his sexuality and the like was devastating for Baldwin. But because of that promise, he never betrayed them. Now, this takes me to the second part of the question, Peniel, around No Name in the Street. No Name in the Street anchors Begin Again. I remember when I first started, when I wrote the first four chapters of the book, I gave them to Michael Thelwell, who's a professor, at, emeritus professor at, of African-American studies. At oh, University I know of Professor Thelwell, yes. And <laughs> you know Professor Thelwell is, a, um, is an exacting critic, right? Yes. So, and will say whatever is on his mind. And I gave him the first four chapters 
I drove up to Amherst and I walked into the house and he says, Glaude, I thought you in, a, in that Jamaican pat, in Jamaican patois, mm-hmm. Glaude, I thought you were intelligent. This makes no damn sense. And I said, you know, I'm trying to do something with that echoes the form of no name. He says, you're sticking too close to it. And finally, when I finally figured out the form, he got it, right? And one of the beautiful things about No Name in the Street is No Name in the Street is the first book published after the assassination of Dr. King, mm-hmm. right? Of course, you get the the conversation with Margaret Mead and Rap on Race and, and Nikki Giovanni and the like, and then a few fugitive journalistic pieces. But No Name in the Street is the book that emerges out of the chaos, out of the attempted suicide, out of the collapse. And it's a book at the level of form that's trying to capture wound and trauma and also to narrate a history, but it narrates a history in a fragmented way because of the trauma. And it does something that very similar, it parallels with The Fire Next Time. Remember in The Fire Next Time, Jimmy tries to render the nation of Islam intelligible to the reader. And Jimmy in No Name in the Street, right, engages in an account of, black, of the Black Panther Party, right? Not so much to make it intelligible, but to understand it, but to give it space to breathe so that we can understand the importance of of this moment, of the embrace. Um, So it's a book that anchors begin again. It's a book that I'm trying to, um, I'm in conversation with from the first page to the last page of Begin Again. So like you, I think it's this most important piece of nonfiction. I want to talk about blackness because there's a point where you do push back against some kind of mystical black BS, but you're not pushing back against BLM and black feminist intersectionality, but you're saying that there's a point where we're going to have to um, move beyond this, these, these categories in terms of to build that new, that new Jerusalem. I want you to talk, talk about that because I think it's a section in the book that's really important but I think it can be easily misconstrued in a way, even as you you push back against the idea that, um, you know, white cisgender males calling everybody else identity politics when they practiced and innovated the first white supremacist identity politics. So yeah. I want you to talk about that, because I think even when I teach this book, I think there's going to be some pushback um, because it's I think it's elegantly done. But I want you to talk about that. Yeah. You know, so. I think it's 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 really important for us to understand, uh, and you know this is one of those kind of uh, moments of continuity between Fire Next Time and and No Name. You know, Baldwin thinks of color, the necessity of embracing color, right, on the part of Black folk, as a consequence of a society that's organized in such a way where it distributes advantage and disadvantage along the lines of color. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that we embrace it. And Baldwin would say, and for the fact that in No Name in the Street, he says, and the fact that we would finally take up blackness uh, and give it positive meaning means that we are actually rejecting uh, um, or uh, rejecting what the world is saying about us, we're finally disagreeing with the way in which we're being talked about. And we're breaking free of white supremacy's uh, um, rendering of who we are and our value. Um, and, and so Baldwin understands it as a kind of practical, political matter. It's a political reality and it has moral implications. 
But when we begin to fix ourselves, when we begin to say this is essentially who we are, then Baldwin says we've sprung the trap. We're right back where we started. We're just, we're just flipping scripts, right? And so part of, I think part of the challenge is that when, when we look for that, as, as I, I use this, I think I use this, um, this metaphor, when, we're, when we stick our heads in the sand searching for that essential green, right? we're not looking at anything else. We're not seeing anything else. And part of part of the work is to is is to destabilize these categories, to free us up to be the fullest human beings possible. But this is not about some sentimentalized notion of universality, right? That's not what he's talking about. Or colorblindness. No, 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 no. Right? He's just trying to get us to understand what it would mean, what it might mean to fixate on a notion of blackness as the ground of all of what we are and who we are. At that point, then you're trapped, just like the, like the folks were trying to resist. Now, you also get into how he moves beyond setting white folks free. There's a great, um, there's a great paragraph uh, in the chapter, The Dangerous Road, on page 83. You say, all of this hard work, almost Sisyphean labor, in a country so wedded to its legends and so in need of its illusions. Black folk have sacrificed generations trying to fight it all, and here, here we are in the second decade of the 20th, 21st century with Charlottesville and so much more in our rearview mirror and in front of us still fighting for an understanding of American history that will finally set white folk free. So this is sort, sort of my preface question before getting into Trumpism, before getting into the now and connecting it with Jimmy. But what do you mean by that in terms of set white folk free and what Jimmy sort of his his evolution. What, what, one, what does that concept mean? Setting white folk free. And Jimmy Baldwin has the great quote saying, "We were the only ones who knew the white folks, meaning the enslaved. <laughs> Those of us who were enslaved, we were the ones. Not not only does Jimmy say we're the only ones who knew them, we're the only ones who cared for them. I want you to unpack that because I thought all of that is extraordinary and it's layers upon layers upon layers. <laughs> You know, and, and what's so funny is that, you know, that I had a moment on, on MSNBC that went viral with Nicole Wallace. And, and that paragraph I had just written. And I was channeling it in that, in that, in that viral video with Nicole Wallace. Um, I actually used the language of, you know, you know setting, setting what, you know, a history that would set white folks free, right? Um, but, you know, I think what I'm trying to suggest here is that, you know, um, we have to bear the burden of this nonsense, uh, but but it makes them monstrous, right? They they are caught, they are captured, and now in 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 the fire next time, Baldwin is very clear um, that um, we have to love them in order to in order to help them see themselves differently, and, and you might read that as you know a moral claim, or you might read it as a practical claim. Like we, we can't, you know, this is in, in, in the letter to my nephew, right? We, we will continue to have to bear this nonsense, bear the burden of this world until we help them see themselves otherwise. So that could be seen as a moral claim or a practical claim. But by, the, by no name in the street, as Michael Thelwell helped me see, um, his we changed. And so that latter part, right? We're not the problem, they are. Mm-hmm. But we don't need to spend our 
energy, our finite energy trying to convince him to be otherwise. We need to just simply join with like-minded others to build a new Jerusalem where these views have no quarter to breathe. But what Baldwin is saying is that, you know, for folk, you know, think about the ending of No Name in the Street, right? I'm going to put it off my shelf. There's this line at the end of No Name in the Street, you know, that's so dope. He says, whoever is part of whatever civilization helplessly loves some aspects of it and some of the people in it. A person does not lightly elect to oppose his society. One would much rather be at home among one's compatriots than be mocked and detested by them. And there is a level on which the mockery of the people, even their hatred, is moving because it is so blind. Namely, it is terrible to watch people cling to their captivity and insist on their own destruction. I think black people have always felt this about America and Americans and have always seen spinning above the thoughtless American head, the shape of the wrath to come. That's how he ends the book before he turns to the epilogue. So this idea of freeing white folk from a his, from, from a, you know, from this history is to, is to get them to shake loose from this idea that they ought to be valued more than others, to, to get them to shake loose from the myths and illusions that justify a world that distrib distributes advantage and disadvantage along the lines of who's valued and who's devalued, who's regarded as something as somebody and who's disregarded, right, uh, as nobody, right? So I think Baldwin is trying to say, what, what must it take for you to encounter reality right because this and, this innocence reveals a depth of immaturity and adolescence that that leads you to to stay in never never land and that never never land is really trumpism and i want to talk about that <laughs> and um trumpism you really talk about really all of our complicity in this but you say how uh eddie you you were surprised that trump won that that you at the time, you wrote something with Frederick Harris. You were giving people options in terms of 2016, people who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, let's talk about Trumpism and where we're at now. Uh, we're speaking um, after the Breonna Taylor uh, grand jury, non-indictment, uh, one officer uh, uh, just charged with endangering basically white folks in the building <laughs> uh, where Breonna Taylor was, was murdered in Louisville. Um, we're seeing protests all around the country. Uh, one of the reasons this book is so timely is that not only is it this um, great uh, analysis of, of Baldwin uh, and the history behind that, but then it connects really in very overt ways, biographical ways. You talk about yourself wrestling with this moment and wrestling with hopelessness and looking uh, to renew your faith within the ruins and the wreckage of both Baldwin's time and our own. So um, let's discuss Trump and um, this moment that's even bigger than Trump, but the lies continue apace, brother. The lies about democracy, the lies about uh, the devaluing of black humanity, um, the violence that is coming from the state and also coming from media and coming from longstanding institutions that are crumbling right before our very eyes. Yeah. This yeah. is such a time. So let's talk about, you know, what can, how can Baldwin help us see this time? Irish whiskey to talk about this part of it. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I think, I think it's, um, you know, I mean, and one of the, one of the interesting aspects, you know, Penel, as a historian, you know, you see it, 
you see the reassertion of the law, you know, the 1776 commission, mm-hmm. right? The, this idea of his, this idea of American history as, as, as pristine Valley, you know, frontier, right? You see all of the old tropes, tr- you, know, you know, being trotted out uh, in order to hold off um, uh, this imagining of America differently, right? So it's at the, at its root is panic, mm-hmm. right? The adulation, what you know, that's a line coming from uh, Bo- uh, from Baldwin's essay in 1962. As much truth as one can bear, he said the adulation has at its root panic, mm-hmm. right? And that's what we're seeing. But Donald Trump is just the latest iteration of the American fantasy, right? That this is a white nation in the vein of old Europe. He is an avatar for white grievance and white fear and white resentment. We know why he's in office. Just like Jimmy said, he knew why they elected Ronald Reagan. They went, they reached for a Hollywood fantasy and so did we, right? So did the country, so did these white folk, you know? And so what Trump represents is this kind of nostalgic longing for for an innocence that supposedly has been lost and the innocence has been lost precisely because we have let the barbarians in the, you know, in the gates, you know, through the gates, as it were. And so he is this reassertion of, you know, the greatness of America, as it were. We know all of that is a bunch of BS, you know. And so part of what we have to do is to kind of not exceptionalize Donald Trump, is what I argue and begin again, is not to see him as some as uniquely singular, because that's that kind of melodramatic approach, right? That is, we need our obvious villains and our and our heroes. Back in, in Baldwin's day, he would invoke cowboys and Indians. We need to just invoke Marvel heroes, right? <laughs> they had their cowboys. We have our, our Avengers, right? And so this that kind of melodrama allows us to displace our own complicity onto him. And we can begin to think that the only thing we need to do is get rid of Donald Trump and we're all right. And that's not true. Or we tell a story of Donald Trump that only runs through the racist demagogues that we could easily dismiss, right? So let's tell the story of Donald Trump as coming through Pat Buchanan and George Wallace and Strom Thurmond as if that element of the Republican Party is separate from Reagan, right? And, you know, I say this in the book and, I, and, and you know, as, as, as one of the key voices in black power studies, I'm sure you, 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 you agree, is that Ronald Reagan was as notorious as George Wallace. And for these for, for these folk to claim him as the redeemer in chief was a backhand to black folks face. We knew what he meant. And so and Baldwin says clearly in the last interview with Quincy Troop, he says he was there. I knew I know why they elected this adolescent. Right. Who was damn damn near 80. Right. So part of our part of the work I'm trying to do in, 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 in thinking about our current moment is to see how this betrayal in our moment stands uh, in how it stands in relation to previous betrayals, right? It's, it's, it's similarities and its differences and what is required of us in this moment if we're going to finally give birth to a new America, to a different America. I'm not sure, but you know, does that, does that get at what we were talking about, what you asked? Yeah, and I wanna, I'm, I'm going to get to Reagan, but I want to stay where we're at. You, you, you write in the introduction, the willingness of so many of our fellows to toss aside any semblance of commitment to democracy, to embrace cruel and hateful policies, exposes the idea of America as an outright lie. 
And that reminds me of Malcolm X, and I've just finished the work on Malcolm X, but my own work on race and democracy too, and, and obviously your democracy in Black. Um, where, where does that leave us? You know, I want, I want you, really, for those of us who really believe in democracy, we believe in racial justice, we believe in Black lives, where does that leave, where does that leave us in this contemporary moment? Well, um, on one read, it leaves us, leaves us between a rock and a hard place, <laughs> but we've been there before, right? <laughs> um, but it also leaves us with, with, with the challenge to name our opponents honestly. You know, I think, Peniel, we're facing the new redeemers. That's who these people are, right? And if we begin to describe them as persons who are not committed to democracy, who are in fact using the democratic process to actually undermine it, um, then we can begin to mobilize, um, I think, in a way that that and and respond in a way that that is at scale, right? Uh, we keep tr- we keep treating our opponents as if they're committed to the same thing, and that is as if they're committed to democracy itself. They're not. They never have been, right? Uh, in my view. Um, And so I think we find ourselves once again, as we have been throughout this country's history, trying in some ways uh, to give voice to a vision of democracy that is real and genuine, that is not haunted by white supremacy and distorted by the tenets of white supremacy. And in some ways, I want to paraphrase something that the great theologian Howard Thurman said about Christianity. Howard Thurman said this about Christianity. He said, the the slave dared to redeem the religion profaned in her midst. Mm. The history of Black folk is daring to redeem uh, democracy Uh, that that has been and continues to be profaned uh, in our midst. We've been doing it since they brought us here, Um, um, to echo Malcolm in a certain sort of way. Um, and, and I think this is where we are, right? We got to name our opponents, but we also got to recognize we've been, we've been here before. We've been between rocks and hard places for a while in this place. I want to talk about Jimmy Baldwin's ruins and our own. I think one of the most striking parts of Begin Again is the way in which you track Baldwin in the 1970s and the 1980s up until his death. And I read Baldwin from reading Begin Again as really this kind of prophet um, who's talking about Reaganism, who's speaking truth to power, who's connecting uh, what you call the aftertimes. And we can talk about that from Walt Whitman. He's connecting his aftertimes to Reaganism and white supremacy and the brutal killing and murdering and the racist policies that have really turned back that hopeful moment, that generational opportunity that was represented by SNCC and the sit-ins and the March on Washington in the early 1960s. So I wanna talk about that because I think, and I love the fact that you you, you get into that documentary with David Baldwin and the price of the ticket. And um, even even in, I think one of your um, end notes, you talk about the the interview with Ben Chavis that isn't, and I know Ben Chavis, uh, Wilmington 10, that isn't really broadcast, but the rage and I want us to talk about that. You know, Jimmy Baldwin and rage. I mean, Jimmy Baldwin was angry, angry at his stepfather, angry about racism. He was angry. 
and the way in which he channels that anger, that fury. You know, there's a quote where you say he's talking about being in Selma, and he says, you know, we we want to kill these people, who, yeah. these these blue helmeted troops who are holding back our humanity, yeah. who think of us as nothing. Uh, we're scared at first, but the 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 fear turns to rage. <laughs> And the rage turns to anger and fury. Yeah, yeah. Murderous rage. Murderous rage. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, uh, the, the, the big thing, you know, the, the central thing about uh, Jimmy, though, is that he, he's constantly worried about the rage mixing with despair, which leads to hatred. And there's nothing useful about hatred in Baldwin's corpus, right? Hatred is corrosive of the soul. Hatred can actually turn us into the very monsters that we're resisting. So, but but rage is is productive, uh, as I say in the book. Rage lights the kiln, right? So you can't, you know. And this is why people, I think, in the past uh, created this hard division between early Baldwin and late Baldwin because they didn't want to deal with the anger, they didn't want to deal with the rage. And you know, I tend to read, you know, the way in which I t- when I teach my when I teach Baldwin's nonfiction, I said it, I say it, I put it this way, you know. Uh, fire next time is the prophecy. No name in the street is the reckoning. Now we have to track that. Di- what what happened? And this is why I think I heard it through the grapevine is so important as a documentary. He returns to the South. He retraces his steps. Right. And it has this late 70s, early, you know, early 80 kind of feel in terms of the color and the film and the like. But what he's doing, he's re- he's retracing his steps and he's walking through the ruins, re- returning to, to, to folk that he has been embattled with, uh, uh, who stood on the front line that he stood on the front lines next to, to see Jerome Smith, right, in New Orleans. Uh, Jerome Smith, of course, uh, from the Freedom Rides and, and, and that meeting with Robert Kennedy and the like, right? Or to, you know, to, to see him talking uh, with, with, with folks in Birmingham and, 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 and the like, so and in Selma and the like. So I mean, this is this is you know Fred Shuttlesworth and and and, and those folk, right? So I think when, by him retracing his steps, he's trying, as he says at the very beginning of that documentary, he's trying to give an account for those who didn't make it, but also for those who did, but who survived broken, right? And so there there is this sense, man, where he's trying to bear witness to the consequences of the betrayal, right? To the consequences of the betrayal. And that's, that's, that's hard to swallow, Peniel. In a moment, think about this, in a moment when black middle class, they're about to take off, in a moment where we're, that's gonna produce the Cosby show, in a moment that's going to produce, you know, think about, I mean, I'm talking 1980 and what, what is the discourse of the black middle class in the 1980s? How are we ju- juxtaposing, you know, the black middle class over and against the black underclass? Baldwin is still sounding notes that makes that ascent uncomfortable. That's why folk don't want to read, in my view, you know, the evidence of things not seen, you know. The evidence, evidence of things not said, right? Why? Because Baldwin is saying, how? What are we going to say? What are we going to say about these black babies being killed in Atlanta, where these black, all these black folk hold the reins of power? Mm-hmm. 
How, you know, and so these are the notes that he's trying to sound. And it's just this extraordinary moment. But I, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. Give me back. Give me back in, in focus. Doc. Well, you know, I think in terms of ruins, what I what I so enjoyed about reading the chapter ruins. And at one point on 172, you say we stand in the ruins is really the connection between Reagan and Trump. I think what you argue here and what I'd love to hear you discuss is that what we told ourselves as a nation, America, not black folks, black folks push back. But as you say, some of the black elite and the petty bourgeoisie, including friends and allies that we know and we love and we honor in the academy, they acceded to a narrative that the civil rights movement had worked. It had won. And those babies dying in Atlanta and those folks who were being victims of the drug war and mass incarceration, those were individual choices. That wasn't our collective moral responsibility. Not anymore, right? And we, we, we bought into that story. And we're not talking about Cobra. We're not talking about grassroots Black radicals. But we know, including some folks now who are radicals and revolutionaries, people were visiting the White House, if not the Reagan White House, the Clinton White House and other White Houses. And so what we have to admit, and I think this is what you do here, is that Baldwin stands as this towering figure who's willing to look at that reckoning after the promise of the 1960s, and he's refusing to lie about it, which makes us all uncomfortable in that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. He sounds off key, right? He's not, he's not a part of the chorus, right? I mean, he's telling the truth of these uncomfortable truths at the pitch of passion, to echo Henry James, right? <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the ruins chapter was so important to me, right? Because, you know, it, it's playing on, you know, what I experienced when I was in St. Paul de Vance, mm-hmm. right, where, you know, his, his beautiful home is being transformed into these luxury apartments with the panoramic view, looked like an archaeological site, you know? Um, it, 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 it echoes what David said in The Price of the Ticket, uh, were his last, you know, were his last words that somewhere, someplace, someone would find among the ruin and the rubble something that may be useful. Um, and then to think about the '80s, right? To think about the Reagan years. What is what? What does the ascent of Reaganism actually mean? Right. It is. It is the moment in which the nation closed the door on the possibility of of the Black freedom struggle of the mid 20th century. Closed it shut. And when Baldwin um, details that, when he bears witness to the cost of that, it implicates a whole bunch of black folk, right? Because he's still speaking the truth, right? That moment in, in um, I heard it through the grapevine, uh, that moment when Baldwin is in Atlanta and he's at a Morehouse graduation uh, that Rosalind Carter is speaking, uh, you know, is, is a keynote speaker and, and the critique that's being brought in that moment of Jimmy Carter, who is, in my mind, one of the, you know, the first neoliberal American president in some way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and just kind of giving voice to the fact that, you know, black folk thought Carter had betrayed us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and why there was a low turnout among black folk in that 80 election, you know, in that 1980 election. Uh, I mean, so he's, he's laying bare truths mm-hmm. that account for our own moment, Right. And this is part of what we have to do, I think, when we have a historical sensibility is to kind of tell a different story that bring it that that may bring into view a different set of considerations. 
right? That, that may open up how we understand our current moment. So I wanted to tell the story of, 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 of the 80s and Reagan because that moment is echoed in our own. Ours is in some ways an extension of that. It may be, and here we go, with perhaps a hopeful claim. Ours may be the death rattle of that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I like that you admit um, uh, mistaking uh, 2016, because I, I I concur with Baldwin. I actually voted for Hillary Clinton to buy time. And I thought that that was, yeah, yeah. That was evident uh, for me, for somebody, you know, I'm the son of Haitian immigrants. It was to buy time. But I had a lot of arguments, passionate debates with people I admire, love, respect, who disagreed with me. And this was on the left. They didn't vote for the current president, but they didn't vote for her. And I thought that morally we were required to to buy time for what Dr. King called, and the Bible says, the least of these, to buy time. And I think yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy would have agreed. I think so. I mean, he, you know, and this, I think, is I made an egregious error. And I, and I admit it in the yeah, book, you, you know, and, and, and I made that error. I made that error um, on the basis of two things that I that I that I should have known better. Right. So one thing is I overestimated white folks. <laughs> you know, that's the one thing I did. I should not have done. Right. Because I'm thinking to myself, once they nominated Donald Trump, oh, we got an opening. Right. There's no way they're gonna. There's no way they're gonna elect this idiot. Right. That's what I'm thinking to myself. Right. And he's so obviously not qualified to be the president of the United States. So we can actually push the Democratic Party to to break the back of Clintonism, because like you said earlier, right. It's not just simply Reagan. You know, Reaganism. It's Clintonism that has that has wreaked havoc on our communities in so many ways. And so given. What you know, the kind of muted nature of black politics over the over the eight years of Obama's presidency. I thought we had an opening, right? I thought we had an opening, and and so, um, and then even when I realized, you know, that Trump was the nominee, um, and I said, well, look, if you're in a battleground state, you know, vote for Hillary Clinton. If you're in a state that is clear about where it's going, you know, vote your conscience, and maybe we can have some impact on the Democratic convention and da 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 da. Um, I didn't, I should have known, I should have, I should have known better. I should have known exactly what Baldwin said uh, when having to choose between Carter and Reagan, right? That sometimes, you know, you don't have anything to vote for, but you got to vote to buy yourself some time. Now you write here, but sincerity can often be a mask for cruelty, especially the cruelty of conscious disavowal. To agree with me entails much more than condemning Trump. It necessitates an honest confrontation with and condemnation of one's complicity with a way of life that insists that some people matter more than others and with a society organized to reflect that belief. Um, And you talk about, you know, the Baldwin quote, the end of his quote is this sincerity covers and pardons all and is the very substance of the American panic. So let's talk about that, because I think that is a good lead into the final chapter before we talk about the conclusion as well. Begin again. Um, how, how can we begin again? Because this idea of and you you make the argument throughout, we've got to both confront the lies and then um, gather ourselves together and collectively tell a new story, a new story that doesn't is not anti-American or somehow uh, unpatriotic, but a but a story that actually 
confronts our shortcomings honestly. It confronts our victories honestly, uh, but really eradicates the lie that is at the founding of our of our problems. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna. That's I mean, it's it's a hard thing to do, right? So I'm not I'm not commending like you know national self-flagellation as <laughs> the basis of the story, right? No, I, it's it's a, just a matter of confronting our sins in some ways. In some ways, what I'm trying to suggest is that we need to lay down this perfectionist impulse that America is always already on the road to being a more perfect union and place justice that we're always, we're, we're reaching for a more just society. And if we think about justice as the guiding value, then we're going to tell ourselves a story about what we've wrought, what we've done, the bitterness at the bottom of the cup, right? The shards of glass beneath our feet. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's key. I don't, you know, we have to, we have to figure out how to do that. And I use the example of the 1619 project, um, not because I agree with all of his details. I mean, I think the 1619 project makes us all patriots and that's just not true. Right. I mean, it just, it's just too quiet about folks who just held deep suspicion about the American project and whether or not black folk could flourish here. Um, so we're not all patriots. Um, in that sense. But I think, you know, what the 1619 Project uh, echoed for me was this, 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 or it tried to execute is this, this insight I gathered from, from uh, Edward Said's wonderful book, Beginnings, where he says, the problem of beginning is the beginning of the problem. Where you start, where you start. So what would it mean if we started with Jamestown as opposed to Plymouth Rock? as opposed to 1776? What would it mean if we'd started not with, you know, George Washington never told a lie or look at the brilliance of his wooden teeth when those aren't wooden teeth, right? Um, so so part, of, part of that involves um, uh, uh, a confrontation with what Baldwin would describe as our ghastly failures. And, and, and how that story can be told in such a way that opens us up to being otherwise. Um, and maybe that takes the form, Peniel, of, of uh, you know, uh, a peace and reconciliation commitment. I don't know. It, 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 you know but, you know, I agree with, uh, with Brian Stevenson that reconciliation, truth and reconciliation is uh, sequential. You got to tell the truth before you can reconcile. And once you reconcile, then you will begin the hard work of repair. Um, so that's what I'm trying to open space for. So how do we begin again? First of all, we have to tell the truth about what we've done. Tell the truth about who we are. As Jimmy would say, go back and do your first works over. That's the second chapter of Revelations, verse 5. Right. So if I'm going to be a better, you know, the way to put it personally, if I'm going to be a better daddy, a better father to my son, I had to go back and deal with deal with how I was treated as a child, how I was wounded, and how that wound set me in a particular direction. And I didn't do that. So I reproduced a whole bunch of stuff that I shouldn't have reproduced. So what does it mean to do one's first works over, to begin again? Is to begin to retrace, is to see where you made the mistake, and then to correct, and to figure out how to be differently. Right. That's that's what I mean. Sounds too abstract, but I try to make it somewhat concrete. The the quote um, from Baldwin is not everything is lost. Responsibility cannot be lost. It can only be ab abdicated. If one refuses abdication, one begins again. Um, 
you movingly write about going to the uh, the Peace and Justice Memorial, uh, Brian Stevenson in Alabama, and you know, seeing Confederate stuff on the way on the highways. Um, I, I want you to talk about that um, in terms of connecting that to what you say. We we can't let this current moment put a stranglehold on our imaginations about what's possible. What do you think is possible for us um, in this current moment? Because this book is actually a hopeful book. It's just um, a hope that is um, searing uh, because it's it's earned through confronting uh, a much more honest accounting and reckoning of our political moment just through the history of Baldwin and that history of that second reconstruction, even as we face a third reconstruction and you call for a third founding in our own time. Yeah, you know, um... It's a it's a blues soaked hope, you know. It's that line that comes out of Du Bois's of of the passing of the firstborn: a hope not hopeless, but unhopeful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a version of hope that that echoes what Jimmy said in 1970. You know, hope is invented every day, and that's not you know Panglossian optimism from Voltaire's Candide. That when he says hope is invented every day, those that's a formulation about people who have to figure out how they don't get up in the morning. Like how are they going to muster the energy to, to open their eyes and roll out of the bed, given what they have to face? Um, so part of what I, I do know is that we, we, are, we teach the, let me just say it this way, um, we teach a generation of folk who have come up in, amid catastrophe. We could call them the catastrophic generation. Climate change evidences itself in you know, super storms, you know, super floods, you know, mass school shootings, police murders, uh, great recession, um, global pandemic, uh, world economic depression. Uh, these these young folk have come of age in a moment that that reveals that the country is broken. Doc, it is broken, um, and I think that that opens up. Uh, a possibility, you know, it's it's almost like, you know, what Stuart Hall would call, you know, how Stuart Hall put it, that conjunctural moment, that crisis that, that shows us that everything, all the contradictions of neoliberalism or Thatcherism or Reaganism, all of those contradictions are in full view. And you combine that with the corrupt political class, right? And, and you combine that with the deepening precarity among everyday ordinary people. And then cops are doing what cops do when it comes to black folk. Right. It gives you this opening. And I think you have a generation of folk who know that the country is broken and they're reaching for different kinds of languages. Some are reaching for progressive language, whatever we might mean by that. And some are reaching for old languages of authoritarianism and fascism. Right. The very thing we seeing we're seeing across Europe, we're seeing across the states. So so, you know, I keep telling people the Boogaloo boys are not baby boomers. <laughs> Dylan Roof isn't a baby boomer. Right. These are young folks. These, that Kyle Rittenhouse isn't a baby boomer. Right. So so you have uh, the, you know, the, the fallout, the consequence of the brokenness, as it were, which offers an opportunity uh, as well as peril. But again, there's no guarantee. You know, and given our history, uh, you know, I, I'm not confident we're going to make the right choice. My last question is how, you know, after reading this book, um, I, I can sense um, 
the 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 passion, the turmoil, the artistry that went into it. How has writing the process of writing Begin Again really changed you? Um, because obviously it's a book, a very transformative book, but for the author, it had to be a very, very difficult, painful book to write. How, how has this process um, changed you? And, and, and really in the fact that all of us who are authors, you're never quite sure how your book is going to be received. This has been a New York Times bestseller. This is really the work um, that you're going to be known for, um, whether you like it or not. <laughs> um, this is going to be the work that, you know, when we say Eddie Gloud, you say, begin again, we're going to teach it and you're going to be celebrated for this uh, work. Um, how has this process changed you? Well, you know, I barely survived writing. I drank, I was drinking too much while I was writing. Um, you know, because Baldwin is, as I've said before, a, an exacting companion. You know, the messiness of the world, he argues, is a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. So in order to say anything about that world, you have to deal with you. You have to deal with your mess. So, you know, I found myself really grappling with all of the scaffolding of my own lies and you know, as I as I was grappling with the vulnerable little boy that I am, suddenly the sentences started to jump on the page. I was able to take risk, you know, and I and I found a kind of confidence because you know you know when you write about someone like Baldwin, you're you're afraid that he's going to run you over like a beer can in the street. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just going to run you over with the sense, or you find yourself just trying to imitate him. So you know, I, I had to keep my voice. I have to. I had to, you know. Um, I had to uh, jealously guard me, if that makes sense. I had to jealously guard me in that as I was writing the book. Uh, but you know what the how I'm how I've been changed, Benil, I would say, is I took a risk to be a writer, not just an academic, not just a scholar, not just a public intellectual. In my heart of hearts, I imagined myself as a writer as an artist, as someone who wants to be a poet. And writing with Jimmy gave me the freedom to take the risk. And I don't think I'll ever be the same again. Man, <laughs> that's very well said, eloquently said. Uh, you've succeeded, brother. You've succeeded, <laughs> brother. <laughs> I think you are in the ranks already, but um, this is uh, obviously proof positive. Um, and so we're really, really, uh, uh, it's been it's been great to talk to you. Uh, very honored um, that you spent some time with us. Uh, but this is a brilliant book, a beautiful book. We've been speaking with um, Eddie S. Glau Jr., uh, who's the James McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, author of many many books, uh, including Democracy and in Black. But the latest book came out earlier this year, this year of racial reckoning in 2020. And it's called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. Everyone should run, not walk, run and, and go out and buy this book and, and bring your yellow highlighter with you because there's a lot to highlight on on really every page. There's a lot of quotes and not just from Baldwin, but from from um, from Eddie. So this is this is a this is a gift. This is a. Uh, a major, major book that's gonna that's gonna really last the test of time. That's gonna be taught and debated and talked about. But it's a great entree for not just the history that it tells and the analysis that it brings and the passion that it distills, but really um, as a product of interdisciplinary form. You get history, you get philosophy, you get African American studies, you get uh, theology. Um, it is it is it is really a masterpiece. 
Thank you so much, brother. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.